Hello and welcome to the Whole In My Heart podcast. This is episode 52. Good faith takes good courage. Yes, it does. Good faith takes good courage. Hello, my name is Lori Creek, and I am here with my husband, Matt. Hello. And producer, Steve. Buenas tardes. Buenas tardes, yes. We are doing it in the afternoon. I think that was right. Good job. Uh, And we are so excited to talk today about how we can be courageous, gritty Christians in a world that thinks we're radical and irrelevant. Uh, which sounds, you know, it's really fun to write out as I was thinking about the title of this. But I'm really excited because we have a great guide to walk us through this. And that would be Gabe Lyons. Gabe, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. Now, Gabe, for those of you who do not know, he is the co-author of the books Good Faith and Unchristian. And I remember un- reading Unchristian right when it came out. And I, it just blew my mind, especially when it was talking about re- issues related to sexuality and just about how many millennials, just one of the first things that comes to mind when they think about Christians is how much we hate uh, LGBT people or homosexuals, as I think maybe the term that we were using back then. Um, but you wrote that with David Kinneman, and you are the founder of Q, Q Commons, the Q Conference, and you are a leader of leaders. I just see that in you, Gabe. You just gather people together, and you're like, here, we, let's, let's share your heart with the world. So thank you for all you do. Well, I'm so lucky to get to do what I do, and it's made more fun by knowing people like you and Matt and the great work that you guys are advancing. I think we're, we're kind of all in this together trying to bring some really good thinking and the right posture to some really difficult conversations. So I thank you for what you guys are doing. Ah, oh, thanks. You know, I so appreciated. I mentioned reading your book and, and reading good faith of so, uh, and, and going to your conferences, but I feel like the moment where I was like, okay, Gabe is one of my people now, um, is I'll just tell y'all a behind the scenes story. We were speaking together to a smallish group of leaders, 250 or so. And, um, I shared my story and Gabe really did this really winsome perspective on how we can engage the culture. Well, specifically when it comes to the LGBT conversation and there was the Q and a time and, you know, I get asked some sometimes awkward things and, um, Someone asked, honestly, very innocently, but essentially said, you know, Lori, you're still wrestling with these same-sex attractions. Are you okay to hang out with kids? And it's hard to throw me, to be honest with you. But this was a moment where I was like, this person is is essentially saying I'm a pedophile and I could not recover. And so it's just Gabe and I on this, this stage and he, I just like could sense his neck like snap back and forth. And he's like, oh, heck no. <laughs> so what you said, Gabe, and it basically was something like, if we can't see that Lori and people like her are a gift to the church, that's a problem with us. Do you remember that moment, Gabe? Do you remember doing that? Oh. I do because I'm, and I just feel for you because I know you're in so many environments where you, you put yourself in a space where there's a lot of people who've not heard a story like yours before. Yeah, yeah. you're already talking about a such a complex question, and mm. people just come into that and just start throwing out what's just pops in their mind, and <laughs> and it's not always that sensitive, not always that carefully worded or, or thoughtful. And I, I was witness to something you probably have experienced a lot yeah. where you get these questions that you're like, wait, did you just hear everything we just talked about for the last hour? Cause <laughs> I, I tried to kind of cover all of this, but, but you know, some people just, they need to hear some reassurance. So I was actually yeah. thrilled that I could step in and just offer my perspective that yeah. I see your story as a gift to the church, to the body of Christ, somebody who's 
lived so faithfully and you and Matt, you're amazing. So mm-hmm. it's like to be celebrated. It's like, this is a gift mm-hmm. to the youth of our day to day who don't understand what it might look like to live a holy life while we still deal with the tension of sin and temptation in our life. And so I just think your story represents that so well. And for this particular group, it's exactly the kinds of stories that the youth that they're leading need. And so, um, yeah, I was, I'm always glad to jump in and, yeah. and bring perspective, especially in a moment where it feels like, you know, there's just a lack of understanding in the room. Yeah. Well, thank you. And just to have someone advocate. So not only I get a lot of the like squinty eyed, like, why should we listen to you from either side for some of this conversation? So to have someone like yourself, who's already done his homework, who already like you're very solid on what you believe. And you're like, no, I'm standing up here with her. I will take hits with her and I'll advocate for her. Was it just spoke so much to not just be in the center of the spotlight and and take the hits, but to actually have someone take some with me spoke volumes. And then I'll just add this in because again, it just made me love you more, Gabe. But after that, just asking you, I was like, Gabe, you have the gift of prophecy, don't you? Which in my perspective, gift of prophecy is a truth teller. Um, And so someone who's like, no, this is what's true. And you do it with graciousness and kindness. And I just remember you being like, yeah, yeah, I do. And I was like, and and just try, I tried to remove any shame from you. And I was like, no, it's awesome. (laughs) So that was the moment when I really appreciated you more and more, Gabe. All right, so we're going to move to the question of the week from last week, which we got a lot of feedback from you all, either at podcast at HMHministries.com or on Facebook or on Instagram. So thank you so much for responding. Uh, For those of you who saw the question, the question was, if you could do anything and knew you wouldn't fail, what would that be? So Matt, Steve, uh, which answers did you see that you appreciated? uh, And then what would your answer be? And then Gabe will swing around to you of, of what would you do? All right. I was really appreciative of uh, Dave. And he said that he would launch a community care ministry center meeting the needs of the least of these. Mm. And that would include food, counseling, job support, give and take library clothes, minor medical, and et cetera. And so just a place where professionals can give to those who are in need and those who are in need can be filled. And the reason that really resonated with me is that's actually very close to my own kind of dream goal scenario where, where I want to create a counseling center that is dealing with a lot of holistic health. So exercise, nutrition, um, you know, obviously mental and spiritual health. And, and so, you know, Dave, if you're out there listening, if you're in the Grand Rapids area, we got to hook up because let's make this thing happen. That's awesome. How about you, Steve? Uh, I liked what Danielle said. So many things for exclamation points. Uh, if I could do anything and not fail, I would write and perform music. I would also live the gospel out like Rosaria Butterfield, <laughs> juggling it all, homeschooling, marriage, parenting, ministry, etc., while maintaining an open and safe space for everyone who needs it. And then she added, we have taken the first steps by having a weekly meal like you guys. I know. She's doing the family dinner thing that yeah. we started every week. Very yeah, I love cool. it. I, I, uh, for myself, I've wrestled with this question all week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've thought about, you know, it's... it's a nice exercise. It helps you to kind of like dream a little bit, yeah. you know? Um, and I thought about like developing some kind of podcast network where yeah. this show is like the flagship. It's like the, you know, the, the first. And then we do, um, I don't know, uh, get other producers who have kind of a similar heart yeah. to see healing and to see the church have difficult conversations. But, you know, 
not like a carbon copy of what we're doing here, yeah. but just other, you know, flavors of it. Where yeah. we kind of our niche is very much the sexuality and gender right. conversation and courage. Right. The gospel's grittiness. Yes. Yeah. So the gospel, I think, would kind of be the common theme, but then it would just be different variations. So I love it. I, I don't know. I don't know. I've thought also about getting a counseling degree like you, Matt, because you're my hero. Oh, well, uh, thank you, Father. But you didn't say what is something that you would do. If you were guaranteed to not fail, that you also don't have to work hard at, <laughs> because that would be hard work. <laughs> and I don't know. I love it. But, yeah. uh, Gabe, any thoughts on this? What would you do if you were That's, guaranteed not to fail? I'm starting to feel really guilty because I feel like everything that I'm hearing are these just kingdom vision pieces. And, and I kind of went a totally different direction with this <laughs> and thought I would probably try to climb Mount Everest if hey. I knew I would make it back with all my fingers and toes, yeah. make it alive. I think that would be the thing I would say, oh, I'm, I'm in. I'm going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Gabe, just look in the mirror a second because you're already doing so many kingdom building things. And so I, it's OK. It's OK to do Everest. That's holy, too. <laughs> uh, if I would answer this question, I'll first just uh, pick one that stood out to me, which I loved so many of these answers. I was just really, I too, like you, Gabe, I was looking at everyone. I'm like, wow, this, everyone's amazing. Uh, but Kelsey said, homeschool, I'm doing it regardless, but I'd have a great deal more peace at least. And so I do not want to homeschool. However, I liked what she was referring to, which was basically, I want to do what I'm doing sans fear. So I want to keep going on this trajectory, but I want to remove the fear from it and just that that would look so much different, more different. So I think about, I would probably do most of the same things, but maybe just with more fervor and more focus and just less, you know, oh, I don't know, maybe some of those those sentences that we couch our sentences around, which we need to be sensitive, but there's, a, there's an element too of where I am not being sensitive, I'm living in fear. So I think I would just like to live without fear and really do what I'm doing with more pedal to the metal. And I don't look over at Matt right now as I say that, because he's like, no more metal, no more pedal, please. <laughs> this is enough. <laughs> All right. Well, now it is the time of the program where we take a vacation from our problems to borrow the line from What About Bob? Time for Newpole Island. All right. So, Gabe, you know, I know some people know you through the Q conference. They see you in your heart and your mind there and they read it in the books. And um, I just wanted to get them to get to know some of the pieces that maybe you don't share on the stage, such as what's your Enneagram number so we can put you in a box. Yeah, please. I love boxes. Um, I've been on a little interesting Enneagram journey. Everybody yeah. thought I was a three, including myself. Yeah. But um, I think I've concluded I'm a seven. Oh. And, you know, I'm not super into the whole subtypes and understanding all of the dynamics. But some people look at that and think a seven is just always this just gregarious life of the party. And while there was a little bit of that happening for me when I was in college, I feel like now I'm a little more settled down, but where, where, where I see that is just in my desire to participate and be involved in so many different activities, hobbies. I just have so many different interests that all I'm motivated by so many of them mm. um, versus what as a three, you know, the, the motivation is so much about, you know, performance, ambition, yeah. you know, in, in my view, just just uh, success. Mm. Um I just feel like that's not that's not where I'm at. So so anyway, that's that's been helpful for me to sort of better understand, you know, why I do some of the things that I do and 
Yeah, that's great. That's, that's me. I love that. And I know Dr. Preston Sprinkle has been on here a hot minute who you're friends with. He's a three. And I can see that more achievement orientation in him. And I can see what you're saying. Maybe that's why I like you so much. And I love Preston, too. But I can see that difference in your personalities of just what perhaps motivates you. Um, we do always yeah. say we need more sevens yep. in our lives to we, keep us fun. We, always, mm-hmm. we collect sevens, yes. <laughs> All right. Yeah, what I was going to going to add to that though the 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 real defining way that i figured that out just to be quite honest here yeah was understanding kind of the secret sin of these numbers and totally. you know a three it's deception mm. and seven it's gluttony and and for me that was the one thing that i understood about myself like this is true of me like when i'm not healthy mm. i can move towards gluttony and mm. and that can be food it can be activities distraction and that's where, for me, it became much more clear because I, I definitely knew the secret sin I struggled with. Yep. Um, by bringing that to light, it's helped me really start to grapple with that and to understand those feelings, the drive towards some of towards gluttony when I'm not in a healthy place. So anyway, it's been it's been a helpful tool. That's really great. All right, how about one of your most embarrassing moments? Well, I have to go back to middle school, guys. Of course. You know? yep. That's where we draw on all of them from. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, it was one of those afternoons. We were, it was after school and nothing good's happening after school. Like your no. parents are late to pick you up. Of course. Like there's nothing really to do. No teachers are around. <laughs> but sure enough, outside the cheerleaders, middle school cheerleaders were practicing for, you know, cheerleading, whatever oh. they do. Um, and so because I had a girlfriend that was on the cheerleading team, of course. I was out, you know, goofing around. We were watching them cheer probably 20 feet from where they were practicing, standing on a sidewalk up against a fence and just watching. And one of my so-called friends in middle school mm, friend of me. comes up behind me, literally, um, pants me. If you know what being <laughs> yep. pants is. Yep. Oh, and actually Probably. you... You didn't see it, but Steve made the motion. He I knew saw you were coming. going there. Yeah. Same thing happened to me. <laughs> and so that moment was one of those. It probably only lasted about, you know, five seconds. But for that moment, I remember pulling my pants up and running as fast as I could uh, away from that practice. <laughs> Poor <laughs> so Gabe. Anyway, that's it. What? Okay. What character were you in junior high and high school? What was your like group? Did you belong to? You know, I was, it was interesting. Like, uh, I wasn't like the popular kid. I mean, I wasn't the athlete at, at that point, more in high school, I became more of an athlete, but I would say in middle school, I kind of hung back, you know, I would say I was, uh, I don't know how you, how you define groups, but I would have had a, a, a little group of friends. We all hung out. Mm-hmm. We all went to the same church school. So it was actually pretty solid. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I was trying, I was trying to fit in, trying to figure out what it was like to, you know, what it would be to be cool, you know, all those little things. And now that I have a middle school daughter, yeah. I totally understand what she's going through because it's Aww. just a painful set of years. Yeah. Hmm. Oh man. Do you still, you ever feel those insecurities from like junior high and high school where you're like, cause I, I was a trier too. Like I wanted to be cool so bad, but I just could never crack the code. Do you ever like feel those same insecurities bubble up in adulthood? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think whenever I'm in situations where I'm with people I don't know or it's an environment that could be a little intimidating. Yeah. 
you know, so those things can kind of come out and you're trying to figure out how can I fit in, yep. who, who do I need to go talk to right now, and, and um, but certainly less so than it would have been years ago. Oh, yeah, the hormones, et cetera. <laughs> and pantsing, that's not usually a thing in adulthood. No. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes from Chip Ingram is, at the end of the day, we would do well to remember we are all painfully insecure. Mm. And it's just true. Uh, what was your favorite kid's book growing up? Well, Corduroy for the like ultimate children's book. And then the oh, Hardy yeah. Boys series was my, you know, like third, fourth, fifth grade. Yeah. I, I read all of those books. Oh, yeah. That's what's up. <laughs> Which is the same author as Nancy Drew. Or what did we decide? We, we solved that mystery. Yeah, they were all ghostwriters. Oh, all ghostwriters. Yeah. All right. So, you know the feeling and sorry, but you already outed yourself with the gluttony tendency. So, when we think about gluttony when it comes to food, when you're in your house and you're like this thing is gone, this snack, this chip, this whatever. When it what causes a little panic inside of you when it's gone? You're like, I need that thing. Yeah, you know, I probably my my favorite go-to would be like the white cheddar cheese puffs. That's kind of the new the oh, new yeah. thing I like. That's yeah. uh when that's around, I, it's very tempting, uh, to, and I have to resist it most of the time. <laughs> is it the like ball shape, or is it like the the original Cheeto shape? Uh, it's like the original cheese. It's like the cheese puffs, but they went from orange to more of the cheddar, yeah. and they tried to make it seem like they were healthier. Oh yeah. So it makes me feel a little bit better about it, but I know it's not better. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel better sometimes eating that versus Cheetos. Yeah. yeah. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I helped my girls finish off a bag of original Cheetos this morning. So extra orange dye. Yeah. I mean, all of, we all look like Oompa Loompas now. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't need any fake tan. He's all set with the Cheetos. Okay. <laughs> not that you would ever fake tan. You would need to be a whole different personality to do that. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, thank you for going to Goofball Island with us, Gabe. And now we're going to shift to the heart of the matter. So, Gabe, we ask every single guest who comes on here the same set of first questions, which is, when was the gospel first good news for you, and how is it still good news? Well, for me, I, I would say it was in sixth grade. That's when I, um, this was the pre-the-pants story. There we go. So you had Jesus at that moment, so you just ran yeah, to I, pray. I, <laughs> I, I grew up in a a very churched environment. So my whole life was church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Um, we even did something some of the listeners might remember if they grew up in the Baptist world called Awana, where we memorized oh, yeah. scripture. You know, so it was hardcore. Yeah. Um, and so I thought, you know, I thought I became a Christian when I was five. And maybe I did. You know, I said the prayer, all that. Got the badge. Got baptized. But it was, it was really in sixth grade when I started to come into more touch with just my sin understanding really uh, just just who I was and who I wasn't. Um, and I really started to process just the reality of, of the gospel. And, um, you know, having lived a life where I was in the church world, I, I felt like, you know, I didn't have this testimony of having done a bunch of bad things or coming from a bad situation mm -hmm. where I was around a lot of evil and sin and immoral behavior. Like that just wasn't happening for me when I was 11 years old. Right. Um, but I did, I did recognize that the seriousness of God's call to us and Christ's call to us um, to follow him in every area of our life and to be uh, just completely submitted to him, um, even as a sixth grader. And, wow. and to have the mission in my life of understanding that, you know, I also had 
this responsibility to go out and actually make disciples, to talk to my friends, to be a part of what God was trying to do in the world. Hmm. And I just remember, and then my friends had to think I was crazy. I was in sixth grade. And, and by the way, so my mom leads me to the Lord again, like yeah. at my bedside in tears where I, where I, I basically asked Jesus back into my life. Hmm. Maybe he was already there. I wasn't sure, but I was like, I'm going to, I just want to make sure that I've, I've really am doing this now that I understand, you know, my sin more than I did when I was five. And, um, at that moment, man, it just switched. And, and I became an evangelist in my little private Christian school. <laughs> I was calling my Christian friends at night. And I remember getting them on the phone and just saying, do you know that you know that you know that you know Jesus? Like, Stop are you, it. are you really, you know, are you really a Christian? Because there's some serious words in scripture about those of us who think we are, but maybe we're not. And so I just remember sixth grade going going for it, right? Writing, I remember writing a gospel track when I was like in seventh grade, like my own version of that, (laughs) you know, so it was, you know, for me, and I I guess as you look throughout my life now, my story, my, my understanding of the gospel was very much compelled me to want others to participate in it and Mm -hmm. to understand it and to get it and to participate. And so um, that kind of began then and, and never really stopped. Wow, Gabe, th- it just helps explain a lot of even what you do, just the whole Q brand and everything. It's just, it's really just that sixth grader heart who is so fervently in love with Jesus and convicted by your right. own sin. And you're like, come on, partner with me. So it, it really brings to light uh, even what you're doing today. So man, thanks for that. So you wrote a book, you wrote a couple books, you and David Kinnaman, and um, they were really beautifully research-based and very practical, again, uh, unchristian and good faith. Why did you choose to write them? Well, these two books were separated by essentially a decade. And the first book, Unchristian, that you referenced in 2007, David and I, I mean, we were not authors at the time. He hadn't written a book. I had never written a book. But we had commissioned research through our organization at Q uh, to better understand how 16 to 29-year-olds felt about the Christian faith and what were their perceptions of it. And so we conducted all this research for the sake of our organization, for some retreats we were doing with Christian leaders where we really wanted to lay out kind of scientific data about the negative brand and perception of Christianity. And so after doing that at one of these retreats, we realized how impactful it was, how much it was causing new types of questions to be asked. It was it was kind of demanding all of us to start to look inward about how have we contributed to these perceptions. Mm-hmm. And so some of the perceptions were this, that 91% of 16 to 29-year-olds who were not Christians felt like Christians were anti-homosexual. Mm-hmm. That was like the number one perception. You know, then 87% thought we were judgmental. Mm-hmm. 85% that we were hypocritical. I think it was 75% that said, Christians are just too involved in politics. Now think about that. That was like 2005, 2006. Yeah. yeah. You think about what it sounds like in 2018, what young people think about Christians or evangelicals right. involvement in politics. And I think when we realized the reaction it was happening, having, we decided, you know, we have a responsibility with this research to actually get it out more broadly. So we just partnered together and said, let's do this book. And we did. It was called Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity and Why It Matters. Mm. It immediately became a best-selling book uh, to this day. I mean, I can't believe it. Ten years later. Yeah. 
the book continues to sell. There's still youth pastors and parents reading this book. Right. Um, even though the research is dated by a decade, it actually, there's so many truths to it, as well as we really tried to handle helping people understand how we overcome these perceptions. And the, and the root of it was to say, we have to get back to being the type of people that Jesus called us to be, because most of these perceptions are not who Jesus is. So their perception of Christians is very different than what a perception of Jesus would have been. Mm-hmm. And so let's start to get back to what it really means to be Christian. And then we wrote this book, Good Faith, and I'll wrap this up quickly, Gloria Matto. You're but doing great. Good Faith was our latest project where David and I came back together almost a decade later, looked at new, new research, trying to understand not just how young people, but even adults were feeling about faith in general in America yeah. and religion. And we started to see a lot of the high negatives again, and and there was a couple new words thrown into the mix, and one of them was that Christians are extreme, and that our ideas are extreme. Mm -hmm. And um, that's a serious charge in a culture that's pretty bent on everybody uh, being tolerant of one another, of of, um, valuing ideas and valuing people getting along, and, and yet the Christians are the extreme ones, and so it kind of gives a, a little bit of a moral authority to those on the other side to say, look, we need to sort of dismiss these ideas or at least move them to the periphery because they could actually be damaging our kids. They're damaging our society. These ideas are bad for people. Right. And so it starts to give a little more of a motivation to sort of push the Christian ideas, Christian faith to the sidelines. And so it's a little bit of a new dynamic now for us, for our children, for thinking through what does it mean to to be people of good faith who actually know how to live this out in such a way that our love is vibrant. Our beliefs are solid. You know, we know what's true and what's not true, but we're also living this out in such a compelling way that people are curious again about why it is that the Christians live their lives in such a manner that would cause others to, to take a second look and say, I I want what they have. Um, I don't know if there's a lot of that happening today. And we wanted to kind of encourage people to remember historically how the faith has always gone forward, even in times when it was in a minority position, how sometimes that's actually the best time for faith Mm -hmm. to grow, for there to be more fruit. And so the book is all about how to address some of these key social issues that are controversial today, how to help our young people know how to talk and have confidence that our faith actually has something to add to these conversations, something to bring some light to it, some truth to it, some practical reality to it. And so that's what that project was all about. Mm. That word extreme is so fascinating because I'm sure there's a lot of Christians and maybe extremists or whatever you want to say, who they're like, no, that's what Christianity is, is you're supposed to be extreme. You know, I, I, I want to be called a Jesus freak, etc. cetera. Uh, so h- how do you wrestle with that tension of, yeah, we're supposed to be radically different and yet m- maybe not the extreme that the world sees us as? Or is it that the world is seeing us being radically loving and, and they're calling extreme that the Bible calls great? Well, this is what was similar about the unchristian book and Good Faith was if we're being called extreme because we're so radically loving, yeah. we're so committed to our communities and our neighborhoods. We're so committed to showing up for people when they're hurting and fighting back against injustice. And then we're called extreme, then then fine. But if we're being called extreme because we're being judgmental people or we're not, we don't know how to listen or have conversations with people who are outside of our own little people group, which some of the research came back and said that, mm-hmm. then, then we need to take a deeper look. 
I will say, though, in this moment, some of the, the research, we have 20 different points in the book yeah. uh, on this research of, of things that people viewed as extreme, and, and they really are activities that normal Christians would be doing. So, for example, six out of 10 Americans said it's extreme if you were to uh, try to convert someone to your faith. Yeah. If you were to actually have a conversation around you know, telling them about Jesus, that's an extreme act. You know, almost half said if you were to pray for somebody on the sidewalk, you know, kind of a stranger, and you were to stop, talk to them, hear their situation, and then pray for them, or a homeless person, that would be extreme. Mm. But to your point, 42% of Americans said it would also be extreme for somebody to quit a good-paying full-time job and go do missions work. Right. Right? That's right. to your point. Mm. That's extreme. Like, that's good. That's devoted. That's not a bad thing. And so David and I actually make the case that actually all of us are probably extreme. If we really get into what our belief systems are, the choices we're making, um, we are extreme. And let's own the fact that we're extreme in the sense that we're devoted to to a God who we can't see, but who who has truth claims on our life and on how the world works. And we actually have chosen to live by those. We understand why a lot of human beings might look and go, man, that's really weird. Like, mm. like that is kind of extreme. But, you know, it's it's no different than I, I'm sure you guys have flown into LaGuardia before. And Rebecca yep. and I and our family lived in New York for several years before moving to Nashville. And I remember every time I'd fly in and get the, get the cab at LaGuardia and we'd start heading towards the city and we're winding through the airport and there'd be a sea of yellow cabs sitting there in line waiting for their moment to pick up passengers <laughs> And if you looked over to the left, you always would see six, three, ten Muslims who'd taken off their shoes. They were cab drivers. They'd gotten out of their cars, taken off their shoes, rolled out a prayer mat, and they were on their knees praying Mm -hmm. um, to the east. Mm -hmm. And to me, that looked pretty extreme, right? Right. I mean, even if it was raining, they were out there praying. But what it also said to me is, wow, these people take seriously what they believe. This isn't just some idea right. that they ascribe to. They're, they're literally making themselves uncomfortable to, to be devoted. And so I think about extreme as being devoted and so devoted that you're going to do some countercultural things. It's going to look a little odd to the broader culture, but that's okay because your life should be producing fruit and flourishing that others see and that they understand, man, that's actually being human. And so I, I think um, there's much more to talk about around that, but that's that's a little bit of how David and I um, reacted to that idea of extreme. That makes sense to me. So I interact with a lot of people, especially, or Matt and I do, around the sexuality conversation. And our generation may say sentences like, oh, you know, push comes to shove. Yeah, one man, one woman. But I just don't want to hurt anyone. And I, I, my sense as I talk with people and, and, and really interact with our generation is I sense this gigantic idol of people pleasing uh, between this conversation and a world that's in need. And we, you know, they'll say, oh, I just don't want to hurt anyone. I don't, I, I, I don't want to say anything that's going to, you know, bump. I don't want to be judgmental. Really, they throw that judgmental word out there and they're so terrified. And I'm like, but, but if you really loved them, if you really didn't want them to be ultimately perhaps judged, as Preston will say, I have no salvific confidence in someone who's in ongoing unrepentant sexual sin. So if you really loved them, you wouldn't 
essentially hug them to hell, for lack of a better term. You would say something. So when I was looking at some of your research, I couldn't help but but feel this sense because we're so scared of, of getting uh, dubbed as judgmental. We're so scared of, you know, losing our friends. And, and yet I read this research that you put in there about how Christians feel misunderstood, 54%. We feel persecuted, 52%, and marginalized, 44%. And I'm looking at my generation, I'm like, stand up with me, and you'll know what it feels like to be persecuted and misunderstood and marginalized but you got to open up your mouth and really feel it what do you say to all that (laughs) well i think um you really are living this out in a way a lot of people haven't had to experience it you know you've you've been able to you've you've gone into kind of the the fire on this thing and your story is one that's so counter to the narrative that many people in our society want to push forward Mm. that when a story like yours comes out and starts telling the truth about your experience, about what God's done in your life, about um, your desire for your husband now, and just that transformation that's taken place in your own life, mm-hmm. it runs completely counter to the narrative that most people want to believe. Yeah. And that is being very much pushed forward in our culture, especially with younger people. Mm-hmm. And so you are sitting just right at that tension point where I think you're going to, you're going to feel more than most what this literally looks like to be misunderstood and, and what persecution looks like, maybe not in the physical yeah. sense, but in nope. the sense of uh, people saying things about you that are untrue, as Paul talks about in the New Testament, and people making up lies about you and distortions, um, you're experiencing that sort of persecution. I would say a lot of the people we researched that that would have used words like feeling, you know, 65% of millennials felt misunderstood, yeah. almost half felt marginalized. Um, in some cases, I'm not sure they're out there telling stories the way you are. They're They're in many ways just saying, we're afraid to speak up. Yes. Like we're, we're not even going to talk about what we believe because we know that we will suffer some social pressure, mm-hmm. some peer pressure if I actually say what I believe. And there's actually a belief in kind of this, I would, I'd say the boogeyman, right? It's like this monster out there that's bigger than it in your mind than it really is. Mm-hmm. And when you actually start telling the truth, you start to realize that people are hungry for the truth. They're looking for the truth. Nobody's saying the tr- truth. And finally, when somebody does in a kind, loving way, of yes, course, and, yes. and with the right posture, yes. people actually start to respond. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the opportunity, and that's what we're trying to do through Q and all of our work is instill confidence in Christians and especially in the next generation that our faith actually has answers to most of the questions your friends are asking. Mm-hmm. Um, and they might not know how to say it just yet. They might not know um, how to make the case or, or debate somebody on it. But the reality is most people aren't looking for a debate. They're looking for somebody who's loving and kind, yes. but also willing to be confident in what they believe because they believe, as you said earlier, it's actually better for that human being. So it's better. Your friends are going to have a better life, mm-hmm. a more enjoyable life, a more abundant life yeah. if they can align their lives to God's truth. And if they don't, they're going to suffer a lot of consequences. And if we really love people, we, we won't, as our culture has sort of redefined love, you know, I would say love now equals two things in our culture. One is sex. So if you really love someone, you're supposed to sexualize that to, to affirm that it's truly love. Now, that's not true. That's not God's idea of love. Right. Um, sexualizing relationships to show love is not something Christ ever talks about. But, but in addition to that, love has come to mean affirmation. And so if you love your friend, You will show that love by just patting them on the back, encouraging them no matter what choices they're making, Mm -hmm. no matter 
how they're living their lives, what decisions are going on. Um, and that's not true love. Love says you'll lay down your life for your friend, which means you'll lay down your reputation. You'll lay down them really liking you all the time or liking every word that comes out of your mouth or agreeing with you. You'll lay down those things because you love somebody truly. And you might love them so much that you really do save their life and yes. save them from going down a path towards destruction. And so that's the definition of love that we need to, in the church, be describing more. We need to help people understand understand what true love really means because the enemy has distorted it and now it's taken on a, a little bit of a different meaning that doesn't carry as much strength or weight as Christ intended. Mm. So Gabe, what what does confession have to do with this? Because as you're talking, I just keep getting this image of heaven in mind and this, you know, this, we, this life is but a vapor, but a blip. And then there's this eternity. And so we're with our friends and we care so, so much. But I think there's this element of we don't want to care that much about what they think about us. We don't want to be perpetually stuck in that middle school environment. I just I have this sense of like there's this confession that needs to happen. And so what level what role does confession play into this? Well, I think in each of our lives, confession is what leads to freedom. And when we hang on to our own sin or our pride keeps us from acknowledging where we've fallen and where we struggle and we're not honest about that and we and we can't get that off of our chest and we can't get it out of our mind and we we have no one to talk to and we isolate and we start to feel shame it's it's the enemy's trap for all of us that just mm-hmm. leads us down paths to make really difficult and bad decisions um, and to regret, just live a life with a lot of regret. But if you start to feel the freedom, and this is where we need help in our church environments, we need every Christian listening to this to, to think about their posture with their children, with people who are around them, that we have to create an environment where confession is normal, where yes. confession is something that's on a daily basis. I mean, last night, our family came together and we sang some worship songs and we had prayer time because we'd had some fighting happening that night in our family mm-hmm. last night. Mm-hmm. And and Rebecca, as she does, she's so good at this. I should be doing it. My, my wife says, we need to go just sit in the living room and, and sing some worship songs together mm-hmm. and take this to God. And so we did. But coming out of singing, I felt the, I, the, the, the compulsion that I needed to confess my own sin, my own short temperedness, my own. Um, reactions to my children. And, mm-hmm. and by confessing that, it opened up a whole door for freedom, for conversation, for love, for affirmation of one another, for reconnection. Um, but it's really hard to do that. I mean, our, our own pride doesn't never wants to c- confess. We don't want to acknowledge that we're wrong. We hope it'll just kind of go away. But I think there's something uh, to First John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But confession is the initial act that starts to open up a door, I think, of, of freedom, of, of shame being removed, yes. and of us living, living out uh, in, a, in a courageous way what God's called us to do. And if we haven't done that, we don't usually have courage. We don't usually feel comfortable telling anybody else what we think is true mm. because we do feel judgmental because we know in our own life we have things we haven't confessed. And mm. so it's actually critical to confess in order to then be able to, with confidence, approach all the issues and topics and conversations that we need to be bold about in our society. Yes. Mm. 
this is really just circling back to the start of this whole heart of the matter conversation where you transform, where God transformed your life, Gabe, out of confession and tears. And in that moment, actually, it's even pre-confession and tears that were like, no, it's that boogeyman. I'm stuck here. I can't do it. I can't do anything. And yet in the very act of confessing one to another, to your mom and in this into the Lord, you were empowered because you were set free. These chains that you didn't know were entangling you set you free. And not only to just be like, ah, I'm going to go blast everyone. That's not courage. That's blasting people and actually being judgmental. You loved your friends so much that you started calling them. And it's really been the fruit of your whole ministry. So Gabe, thank you. No, I, I think you asking some of those questions helps make helps me see just kind of full circle some of what my life's been about. Um, mm. But yeah, I, I think it's been a journey of constant learning. I'm still learning. I know you guys would feel the same way. Like we're all still growing yeah. and we need to be growing. But part of that growth is just acknowledging where we're wrong and where we're falling short and owning it and then trying to walk forward in freedom. Amen and mm. amen. Well, thank you so much for your research. Everyone, go buy these books. They're both great. They're going to encourage you. And um, But really, if you want to turn this podcast off and just go before the Lord or reach out to us, you can hit us up at podcast at com or through Instagram or Facebook. We really we want to be there as much as we can for you and connect you to fellow believers who can link arms with you, not look down at you and pat you on the head, but really just, again, another beggar in need of bread. Um, but our question of the week for next week, you all, this is already an interesting conversation I'm seeing online is, do you prefer talking with service people like at the airport or restaurants or the grocery store or the bank? Or do you prefer interacting with robots or machines? So there's a lively conversation happening actually right now on Facebook. And this is, I don't know what I'm going to pick because I, don't, I could go either way. Um, but thanks so much to all of our listeners. Feel free to share this podcast with your friends. Subscribe so you get a little notification that we, there's a new one every Friday. Um, and just thanks for your support, too. We always appreciate it. Uh, Gabe, thanks again for being a part of this show today. You're welcome. Thank you guys for having me. It was, it was just such a gift. I feel encouraged. Yeah. And for all of us here at the Whole In My Heart podcast, we will see you next week. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. Oh, wait, no, no, no. Do the Christian version. Peter Postle picked a pack of, pack of praising prophets. <laughs> that is the best. <laughs> Yeah, it's but it's basically it's, Christian plagiarized yes. nursery rhymes. Oh my yes. goodness! It, with a little tinge of spiritual abuse yeah. for your kids to Judgment be a little bit scared. Laden. What God. would be if it's Mother Goose? What would be the Christian Mother it, Mother it, Dove? <laughs> I don't know. Mother Dove. <laughs> <laughs> Mother Mary. Yeah. Know. Mother oh, mm, two mm, on the nose. A little bit. Good. Lamb. Mother Lamb. Hmm. Fact is right out. (laughs) Five is right out. All right. (laughs) (laughs) What is the what's the number they're looking for? Three, the number you shall reach. Yeah, the holy hand grenade. Not two, not four. You shall not count right out. (laughs) You shall not count to two unless thou proceedest to count to three. Yes, that's it. it. And you're good. Okay.